Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where we talk about history and philosophy through the lens of tap dance. If you'd like to support the show, become one of our Patreon members at patreon.com. All proceeds go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's historic South Side. When I was a little boy, bad things were gay. Homework, Brussels sprouts, mowing the lawn. Society teaching children, hey, can't you see? All this history is killing me. The Lake Park High School hockey team could almost suck an egg. It's a gas from a dying art form. Gas from a dying... The book Jazz Dance, the Story of American Vernacular Dance by Marshall and Jean Stearns has been called the Bible of tap dance history. As well as for modern dance, lindy hop, or swing dance, some might call it, contemporary jazz dance, hip-hop, you name it. First published in 1968, the book is a compilation of numerous first-hand interviews and a wealth of secondary sources and is a valuable reference tool with a fantastic bibliography and a selected list of films and kinescopes for the true hunter of history to seek out. The author of 1977's The Book of Tap, Jim Siegelman, said that when he was writing his book, the New York Public Library had two types of tap dance history books, a stack of books written by majority white middle-class women with few or no sources listed, and geared towards physical education. And then there was jazz dance. Every notable history of tap still borrows heavily from the Stearns' book, and none quite match the of-its-time freshness of the information. You just can't beat primary sources. When it came to race, Marshall Stearns was a progressive guy focusing his historiographies of jazz music and dance on black performers, composers, and choreographers. In an article by music historian Mario Dunkel, titled Marshall Winslow Stearns and the Politics of Jazz Historiography, Dunkel writes that, quote, It is important to remember that the intended function of his jazz historiography was first and foremost a political one. Stearns wanted to improve the social status of African Americans in U.S. society and sought to support black musicians in their daily grappling with a racist music industry by demonstrating the ingenuity and respectability of African American musical achievements, end quote. So there you go. At the risk of dating this podcast episode, the Stearnses were woke AF. And it's no wonder that this book is a significant text and resource. However, there are a couple pages, specifically the first two of the epilogue, on pages 354 and 355 of the purple-covered Da Capo printing from 1994. Uh, And, uh, well, let's say those couple pages are something less than progressive. Stearns asks the question... Quote, is dancing for sissies? End quote. The book lobs an accusation at George Balanchine, saying that he, quote-unquote, leaves no place for male dancers, and that women were concurrently, quote, developing an 
unflower-like aggressiveness, end quote. In jazz dance, the Stearnses appear worried about male dancers in particular, and references another famous dancer who shares this concern, Gene Kelly. Quote, Gene Kelly is not so sure about the men, writes Stearns. In 1966, he told an interviewer that he is deeply concerned about, quote, the paucity of men entering the dance field for a reason no one wants to talk about, the feeling that the field is dominated by homosexuals, end quote, end quote. The Stearns remind us that Kelly had released a television special several years before giving that interview titled Dancing is a Man's Game which won an award from Dance Magazine. Stearns quotes Kelly as saying, quote, Dancing is a form of athletics, and I'd like to see it attract strong young men who can experience the value and the sheer joy of it, end quote. Following that, there are some homophobic quotes from other dancers and critics. The Stearns conclude by saying that, quote, Perhaps it is enough to add that the question of whether or not dancers were sissies never arose in the Native American tradition of vernacular dance, end quote. By Native American, the Stearnses do not seem to be talking about indigenous peoples, but U.S. residents who were simply born here, which may mean that they are implying that immigrants are responsible for the feminization of U.S. American dance, or they might just be using those words to mean simply dance styles and trends created in the U.S. and are not referring to people, uh, specific people, at all. What is clear is that the Stearnses think that the sissification of dance is not a positive thing. Or else, why use the often derogatory word, sissy? These passages in jazz dance are not blatantly anti-gay. Instead, they ask a more nuanced question. Should men dance effeminately? And... If they do, is this good for dance culture? The consensus in jazz dance seems to be, no, it is not good, and that it is driving men away from both watching and doing dance due to the social stigma associated with dancing and homosexuality. And in my opinion, the Gene Kelly quote that it's dominated by homosexuals is, is kind of the worst part. That's a pretty powerful couple words a few words to put together seems like it'd be something you wouldn't say if you didn't mean and from my own personal experience this is still a thing 20 years ago from this episode's publication in high school my friend and i would get bullied by members of the hockey team for talking about our dance competition results in the computer lab and i would occasionally get pushed around a little in the halls nothing bad for a more current example, we can look at a controversy from 2019 with Laura Spencer, one of the hosts of the television program Good Morning America. She had this to say about the son of the Prince and Princess of Wales, Prince George, who was six years old at the time, after reports emerged that ballet was a part of his school curriculum. Prince William says George absolutely loves ballet. I have news Love for you, that. Prince William. We'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you might, you might end up like the 
between the religious studies and the computer programming. I just want to go back to the Play-Doh. In the clip, you can hear the other hosts start to laugh. And then the audience laughs and claps. This released a wave of negative reactions, leading to the hashtag movement Boys Dance 2, which, like all great social movements, is now a trademarked store selling men's dance apparel. And so it goes. After a large group of dancers in protest gave a dance class for boys and girls outside ABC Studios in New York City, Spencer was quick to apologize. Lara, I know you have something you want to share about a segment in last week's Pop News. I do, I do. I screwed up. I did. The comment I made about dance was insensitive, it was stupid, and I am deeply sorry. I've spoken with several members of the dance community over the past few days. I have listened. I have learned about the bravery it takes for a young boy to pursue a career in dance. And last night I sat down with three influential dancers who have lived it firsthand. Do you notice how there's something a little disturbing about her apology? It's good that she realizes that young male dancers must be brave to study dance. But why the hell should they have to be brave? Over 50 years after the publication of Jazz Dance, it's still the same problem. That dance for men and boys continues to carry the stigma of being a gay art form. My question is, why should boys and men, gay, straight, however you identify, why should any of us have to be brave to tap dance? It seems like it should be something that you could just do. And why would anybody care? Personally, I am still affected by this stigmatization. If I'm in a bar and strike up a conversation with a fellow barfly who, on appearance and based on rhetoric, might not be down with a male dancer, I will lie and say that I build portable dance floors. Which I do, because it sounds more manly. Is this bravery on my part? Absolutely not. It is abject cowardice. But, over the years, having to defend my masculinity to strangers got annoying and exhausting, and it's just easier to lie. I don't know this guy in the bar. Am I ever going to see him again? I just want to have a nice conversation, waiting for my wife to get there. So I lie, right? It's just easier. Although it's only a small part of jazz dance, it's made a big impact on me, these few pages. Especially the quotes from the centerpiece of the argument, those of Gene Kelly. Is that what he really meant? Or is it taken out of context? What did the rest of the article say? Might there be some nuance to Kelly's words? This is the subject of this episode, titled Dominated by Homosexuals, Correcting the Record in Jazz Dance. The article cited by Jazz Dance is from the June 20, 1966 issue of the National Observer, titled Imagine That. Dr. Kelly, the old hoofer, which is an interview with Kelly by Joseph N. Bell. I tracked down this article on microfilm at the Harold Washington Library in Chicago. Thankfully, a helpful librarian found the article and sent me a PDF copy of it. What a service! 
Special thanks to newspaper librarian Joshua Mabe for all the help. Thank you, Josh. Prefaced by the subheading, Why There Is Little Talk, Bell writes that, quote, Gene Kelly has long been a leading man in American dance, but these days he's deeply concerned about the reputation of his profession and anxious to explain, not defend, the place of the United States in the world of dance, end quote. Bell continues, writing that, quote, his concern grows out of the paucity of U.S. men entering the dance field for a reason no one talks about, the feeling that the field is dominated by homosexuals, end quote. I have to give the Stearnses a hard time because they falsely attributed that quote to Kelly, writing that, quote, he told an interviewer, end quote, which makes it seem like those are his words, but they are not. They are the words of the writer, Bell. In other words, the Stearns has got this one wrong. Kelly is quoted after that passage, and what he says is a little different. Quote, Any man who works in the dance field today is aware that there are a growing number of homosexuals, says Kelly. I don't really care about that. There are homosexuals in every field, but I do care about men who dance in an effeminate way. End quote. Kelly continues, saying that, quote, The whole basis of dance for men is manly grace, not female grace. So men who dance effeminately are doing a great disservice to the field. This is especially true in a country like ours, so recently a frontier country that has never really gotten used to homosexuality, end quote. That doesn't sound like Kelly claimed that dance is, as Bell put it, and as the Stearns is misquoted as being, quote-unquote, dominated by homosexuals. Instead, Kelly says that he has no problem with gay people, but that he is afraid that the dance industry is losing a certain masculine aesthetic that he finds pleasing and historically important. Of course, there is the argument of, what is masculine? Some listeners may scoff, and think that they know the answer. But let me ask you this. Why shouldn't the concept of what is masculine simply be anything that is done by someone who identifies as a man? Think about other labels we put on people, like how someone talks. If a person is race X, but doesn't conform to the stereotypical speech patterns of race X, then they have probably had someone tell them, oh, you don't sound like a race X. But race doesn't usually depend on how we talk, but how we look. So I believe if someone identifies as race X, if you are race X, then however you talk is an example of how someone from race X would talk. If you are in agreement with the concepts of liberty and free speech, that people are allowed to do, think, and say whatever they want, as long as it doesn't impinge on anyone else's ability to think, do, or say what they want, then you will agree that Kelly has the right to his opinion, which is that he likes how men look when they dance in what he considers to be a masculine way, and that he hypothesizes that men in the U.S. are put off from dancing due to the social stigmatization of it, which I would agree with him about, 
even in the year 2023. Agree or disagree with Kelly, one thing I think that we would agree on is that when Kelly says, quote-unquote, a growing number of, he is not, in this article, making the claim that dance is, quote-unquote, dominated by gay people. My question is, where's the editor for jazz dance? They, They didn't find this part, that's for sure. Kelly elaborates on this point, saying that, quote, dancing is a form of athletics, you know, and I'd like to see it attract strong young men who can experience the value and the sheer joy of it. Dancing is getting a bad reputation mostly because of the way a few performers have distorted the man's role in it. There are boxers, ball players, lawyers who are homosexual. The difference in dancing is that a dancer's work can give him away quite easily and obviously. End quote. In this quote, Kelly gives us a few value assumptions. Kelly appears to assume that homosexual men are weaker than heterosexual men. Or else why would straight young men who value strength, right, he said strong young men, be put off by gay dancers if they didn't think that gay equaled weak? This is false because physical strength has nothing to do with a person's sexual orientation. For example, international strongman competitor and proclaimed second strongest man of 2014, Rob Kearney, recently came out as gay. And that dude is swole. Kelly further implies that being gay is bad, or at least not popular, or less good than not being gay. Or else why would gay dancers give dance a quote-unquote bad reputation? Kelly could mean that gay dancers are simply no good, or perhaps the bad reputation refers only to the fact that it hampers the desire in young straight men who are so closely tied to the cultural zeitgeist to know any better. Either way, it's not a compliment. Another value assumption is that, if gay, hiding your sexual orientation is a good thing, and that gay lawyers and baseball players are okay because they can better suppress their identity and perform their job straight. There's no way I can redeem Kelly for this statement, because... Just being gay, like being of a race and or gender, has absolutely no impact on how you perform a job. Sorry, Gene, this is just some straight-up bigotry. (laughs) I don't mean to giggle after that, sorry. What's really sad is how Kelly, the man who, in Singing in the Rain, plays a character in a show who can't control his impulses and pesters agent after agent by shouting out that he's gotta dance and then goes into a little tam dance right i mean he's gotta dance gotta gotta express yourself right he's gotta dance gotta be true to who you really are he's he's gotta dance only for kelly to later lament that certain people should suppress who they are i know that kelly didn't write the lines but he did co-direct the movie So I believe that he believes it, or else I don't think that he would have done and said, gotta dance, gotta dance. This, to me, seems hypocritical, and it's a sad sort of justice that if, as a young man in 2023, you were to perform the 
gotta dance number down the hallways of your high school, there would invariably be at least one kid, at least the kids that, at least the members of the hockey team from Lake Park High School, who would think that that looks gay. In the article, Kelly further elaborates, saying that, quote, it seems to me, though, that there are fewer raised eyebrows at male dancers in this country than there used to be. We're growing up, not putting labels on things as much as we used to. We're a nation in ferment in many ways, including the field of dance, end quote. In that quote, Kelly acknowledges that people are perhaps starting to get over the stigma that all men who dance are gay. Were there less eyebrows being raised at the concept of gay people existing around the time that this article was published? During the 1960s, there were significant milestones toward equality for LGBTQ people. At least, de jure there were. According to Equaldex.com's timeline of LGBT rights in the decade between 1960 and 1969, quote-unquote, Homosexual activity became legal in several countries, including Mali, Hungary, Czech Republic, Gabon, England, Wales, the United Kingdom, the whole thing there, Chad, the Pitcairn Islands, Bulgaria, Germany, Canada, the former country of Slovakia, and the good old U.S. of A. Fun fact, my home state, Illinois, was the first state to pass such legislation in the United States. That sounds like a lot of places, and it is. But that's just on the books, and not necessarily the de facto situation on the streets. But it is something. It's like how Dr. King in his uh, 1968 book, Where Do We Go From Here, says there's enforceable laws and unenforceable laws. Right? You can make a deadbeat husband and father provide for his family, but you can't make them love them. You can tell people through law to like and respect other people, but you can't make them actually like and respect other people. You can kind of force them to tolerate people, but you can't actually make a law that says, now you love this other person. Of course, there are as many countries outlawing quote-unquote, homosexual activity at the same time as are making it legal, or, in some cases, making homosexuality legal for women, but not for men, or making it, like, quasi-legal, but not okay to tell anyone about it, especially in the army. Well, there's all sorts of weird laws popping up uh, in this decade. The point is that, yes, in 1966 and in the U.S., things were ostensibly looking up for gay people. Only a few years before Kelly's interview, being gay was illegal, and his attitude, while cringy by today's standards, seems level with what one might consider progressive for its time. Let us not be accused of the fallacy of anachronism, thinking that people in the past were as enlightened or think the same as we do now. Though, to be fair... There were plenty of people who feel as we do now because, well, that's, that's why we have these laws. That's why these laws are passed in the first place, right? Gene Kelly, from this interview, seems to be a forward-facing individual, progressive for his time. But what brought him to this opinion in the first place? 
The article mentions Kelly's upbringing, and Bell writes that, quote, getting involved with dancing required an even greater measure of fortitude in Mr. Kelly's youth than it does today, particularly in the tough section of Pittsburgh where he was reared. His mother insisted that both Gene and his brother take dancing lessons, end quote. Writing about Gene and his brother, Fred, Bell continues, writing that, quote, the Kelly boys had to wear Buster Brown collars and Windsor ties and fight all the kids on the block every time they went to dancing school. And their mother finally gave up after a year of endless argument, end quote. But there is a happy ending, as, quote, during that year, however, young Gene discovered that he liked to dance and was good at it, end quote. Is this the root of Kelly's apprehension about men dancing effeminately? He and his brother were physically assaulted for a year, not for being gay, but for doing something that is stereotypically and falsely considered to be gay. And instead of hating on the bullies for being numbskulls, he is blaming the men who must have danced effeminately enough to make people associate the stigma of homosexuality with dance. But what brought Kelly back to dancing? According to the article, it was not until he was a senior in high school that he took it up again. And in Kelly's own words, is because he, quote, could be a big shot with the girls, end quote. Kelly continues, saying that, quote, I had found out by then that I could move pretty well. I could watch a show and pick up some steps, then do them when I got home, end quote. In other words, Kelly started dancing again to pick up chicks. That's not a terrible reason to dance. And it's a good thing that Kelly's libido was strong enough to overcome the stigmatization of boys in dance. But it also sucks that he quit at all due to harassment. Many questions are open for speculation, like, well, would Kelly have been an even better dancer had he had more training as a child? Or would he have had a different more negative experience and quit for good. What if he had had a crummy teacher? Who knows? One thing that we do know is that it is sad that he was put off by bullying in the first place due to something that is, in fact, a non-issue. Perhaps that is why Kelly thinks that dance must be masculine to entice other men to dance because it was teenage hormones and testosterone that allowed him to overcome his apprehension towards dance. If it worked for him, then maybe it could work for other boys and men in a similar predicament. I know that, after seeing Dean Perry's tap dogs as a teenager, tap dance seemed like a manlier endeavor. No comment on the denim booty shorts. But, you know, hey, I mean, if you got the, the butt for it, listen... There are plenty of people who like manly things, and acting manly, it's fine. It's fine to act manly. It's okay, but being manly does not preclude one from having emotions like empathy, sympathy, or just, you know, feeling like crying sometimes. But don't take my word for it. Take the word of one of the most macho and manly men of all time, the macho man Randy Savage, who, when asked by Arsenio Hall on the Arsenio Hall Show, answers the question, does a macho man cry? Okay, you're, you're, your middle name is Macho, but uh, 
I'm wondering if you ever cry. You ever has a macho man ever cried? Oh yeah. Really? Uh huh. It's okay for macho men to show every emotion available right there, you know, because I've cried a thousand times, I'm gonna cry some more. But I've soared with the eagles and I've slithered with the snakes and I've been everywhere in between. And I'm gonna tell you something right now. There's one guarantee in life and that there are no guarantees, yeah. And mm -hmm. I understand this. <laughs> yeah. Nobody likes a quitter. Nobody said life was easy. So if you get knocked down, take the standing eight count, get back up and fight again. And you're a macho maniac. Dig it. I understand that it's a tricky subject, as toxic masculinity has been presumed by some, like Bell Hooks, for example, to be a driving force for much of the world's problems. In a society whose social hierarchies are infused with a patriarchal pedagogy that oppresses both women and men, it's hard to say something like being super masculine is a good thing. But I think that it can be if by masculine we conform to the macho man version, where being manly is not being afraid to feel, but emboldened to courageously confront every emotion. If that's what works for you, then go for it. Just don't be a jerk. In conclusion, I think that Jazz Dance, in the epilogue, paints Kelly in a bad light. Sure, what he says in this article proves that Kelly was not, you know, super progressive by today's standards, but it's not as bad as if he was of the opinion that LGBT people were dominating dance, which has, I think, obvious negative connotations. I'm not sure why the Stearnses misquoted Kelly from this 1966 article, but after reviewing the material and taking the time period into consideration, I'm of the mind to stick up for Kelly. In short, Jazz Dance erroneously misquoted Kelly, mistakenly quoting the author of the article instead, and, to my knowledge, Kelly never claimed that the dance industry is, quote-unquote, dominated by homosexuals. For as valuable as jazz dance is, in this instance, it is wrong. But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. Agree? Disagree? Let me know in the Gasps from a Dying Art Form Facebook page. Thank you to the Gasps Patreon supporters, tap dance aficionados Lori Williams and Junior Lanyon, and step creator Liz Rancourt-Smith for their generous support of this podcast. A downloadable PDF of Kelly's interview will be made available for all Patreon subscribers. So if you want to see the original article for yourself, drop a couple nickels in the old Gasps Patreon Lodian and help out the kiddos and faculty at the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy. In the meantime, it's time for the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. Get back here, you varmints. Click-click-click-click-click. Oh, I'm out of ammo. Alright, we're doing things a little differently today on the Podcast Roundup and are taking a look at some podcasts off the beaten path on the August 20, 2021 episode of the Stop Time Podcast. Host Lisa Hopkins interviews Patricia Ward Kelly, author, public speaker, and widowed wife of Gene Kelly, which makes this an episode fitting, given the subject of this Gasps episode. K 
Kelly talks about living with Jean, how they met, and how she got him to open the dang curtains in their house. Not a fan when they met, Patricia knew a Gene Kelly in his later years, unencumbered by the anxiety of having to prove himself to anybody. Patricia Ward Kelly talks about the Gene Kelly archive that takes up most of the space in her house, how she hunted for Gene Kelly's choreography notes for a recent show that hoped to recreate some of his work, and discusses the controversy caused by the 47-year age gap between them. Hopkins interviews other tap dancers on her podcast, though not exclusively tap dancers, so if you haven't given it a listen yet, I recommend you check it out. On the December 27, 2002... Man, no one puts numbers on their episodes. Anyways, on the December 27, 2022 episode of the Dance Comp Chat podcast, host Rob Jensen interviews dancer, choreographer, teacher, and competition judge... Drew Burgess about tap dance and amateur dance competitions. Mr. Drew and Mr. Rob discuss the ins and outs of tap in these environments, like dancing on Marley and without mics, and provide some insight on some tips and tricks about getting high scores. There is even discussion of the difference between Canadian and American tap dancers. Hint, we gotta step up our rhinestone game, y'all. I mean, it's... Well, it's not good. A very informative podcast that should be of interest to anyone seeking to score the elusive Triple Elite Top First Place Platinum Trophy at their next dance competition. Check it out! Finally, on the Mad Rhythms Podcast Network, a new season of the Either And Podcast, hosted by Brill Barrett, who's also producer of this podcast, The Gasps Podcast, is set to drop soon. In the first episode of season two, Brill has an enlightening discussion with famous Chicago tap dancers Reggio the Hoofer McLaughlin, Martin Trey Dumas III, Irie Mr. Taps King III, and Jimmy Payne Jr. Each prestigious hoofer describe their separate origins and discuss controversy in the Chicago and national tap dance scene. There's too much good info to even begin to condense, so keep a lookout for episode one of season two of the Either And podcast by following Mad Rhythms on the various social media platforms. Believe me, when Brill puts it out, if you're following Mad Rhythms, you'll know about it. He likes to post on Instagram in 12 post bursts, so you'll, you'll definitely hear about it. All right, that's it. Thank you very much. I'll see you later. Goodbye.
Okay, I I think we've lost them. I don't see anybody. Welcome to the bonus section where we, you know, like uh, on old cassette tapes and... Did they do this on records where they would like leave a little space after the last tune or, or track and then if you waited a little bit there'd be like a special thing at the end? I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked it up on the, the internets or nothing. I don't know. Do they do? Did they do a secret? Anyways, welcome to the bonus section. Uh, so, of course, when we use descriptors like manly and effeminate in the U.S., distinct caricatures and mannerisms come to mind. And there is utility in these rhetorical memes to make it simpler to communicate complex, specific ideas in an efficient way. And, in my opinion, there should be a conversation about whether we should alter the definition of these descriptors or create new words that are more socially encompassing. To be honest, either way works for me, as long as we can all agree on what words mean. Of course, changing the meaning of words to meet the expectations of an evolving social society is considered, uh, again dating this podcast episode, as woke. I personally think that the appropriation of the word woke by crusty white politicians and any person using it as a dog whistle for, you know, progressive politics, often uh, for their own personal gain, uh, is no good. And the same people also use the term awake as a dog whistle to mean the opposite of progressive politics. And and I believe that they were awake for a while. So, so why incorporate such a similar word into their lexicon? Like, woke people aren't awake, but awake people aren't woke. So who's actually asleep in this scenario? I just, I don't know. More hypocrisy. Some people call accusations of cultural appropriation a sign of wokeness, but fail to mention that the term woke is itself an appropriation of black American vernacular. I mean, do you remember? So stay woke. I mean, am I the only person who remembers that song came out before opportunistic white politicians turned woke into a slur? Like, like it has a date and everything. Like, why don't we just play that anytime a white politician uses that word? Just bring a boombox, press play on some childish Gambino and, and the pup, you know, like the date that it dropped clear so people can see. I mean, maybe that would clear up all this super quick. According to journalist Aja Romano in an article for the Vox website, the earliest known examples of wokeness as a concept revolve around the idea of black consciousness waking up to a new reality of activist framework that dates back to the early 20th century. In 1923, a collection of aphorisms and ideas by the Jamaican philosopher and social activist Marcus Garvey included the summons, Wake up, Ethiopia! Wake up, Africa! as a call to global black citizens to become more socially and politically conscious. A few years later, the phrase, Stay Woke, turned up as part of a spoken afterword in the 1938 song Scottsboro Boys, a protest song by blues musician Leadbelly about a group of nine black teenagers in Scottsboro, Arkansas, 
who were falsely accused of raping two white women. That year, a young black novelist named William Melvin Kelly wrote a first-person piece for the Times called, quote, If you're woke, you dig it. No Mickey Mouse can be expected to follow today's Negro idiom without a hip assist, end quote. In the piece, Kelly points out that the origins of the language of then-fashionable beatnik culture, words like cool and dig, lay not within white America but with black Americans, predominantly among black jazz musicians. Skipping ahead to 2008, the lyrics to Erica Badu's song Master Teacher, off of the New America Part 1 Fourth World War album, goes like this, and I apologize in advance, but I just, I'm going to get the words out, but I understand that me saying it, you know, is not uh, pleasing. Anyways, to quote, to support you, baby, I stay woke. Even when the preacher tell you some lies and cheating on your mama, you stay woke. Even though you go through struggle and strife to keep a healthy life, I stay woke, end quote. In 2014, protesters in Ferguson, Missouri, began to popularize the phrase online through the social media movement, hashtag stay woke, as well as through street signs and related merchandise. In 2016, Donald Glover, a.k.a. Childish Gambino, used the term as the refrain in his hit song, Redbone, and Jordan Peele used that song as the opening to the horror film, Get Out. From there, as awareness of its political usage spread, the term simultaneously began to draw backlash from critics who argued the idea was superficially performative. In May 2017, for example, Boston Globe columnist Alex Beams snarkily condemned the performative progressive nature of the term. Quote, Do you use the word intersectionality a lot? even if you aren't exactly sure what it means, end quote, he wrote, quote, if yes, you are progressing well along your journey to wokefulness, end quote. Beams added that, quote, the real purpose of woke is to divide the world into hyper-socially aware, self-appointed gatekeepers of language and behavior and the rest of humanity, end quote. By 2018, an NPR commentator begged leftists to retire the term and the connotation of woke as a phony show of progressive activism had taken hold on the right. And where white culture's appropriation of woke begins to dominate the conversation. To be honest, I'm not sure there is any difference between the term woke and the term being politically correct. Both are used to describe someone who is outraged at social, political, and class injustice, which includes both level-headed and reactionary people, and can be both a good thing and a not-so-good thing. The main point, to me, is that regardless of the character of the person being woke or politically correct, it is still a reaction to fixable matters of economic, social, and racial injustice, i.e., even if the woke person is being obnoxious and crude, there is still an underlying cause for their reaction. And it might be better to address the thing they are reacting to instead of just brushing their concerns off to the side as just another example of 
wokeness. Even when annoying, the woke have good intentions. Which, if you are against that, what are your intentions exactly? Is your intention to deny that there is injustice in the world while admitting that the capitalist West absolutely has the resources and know how to fix most of it? Well, why, why would you do that? It makes no sense. It seems to contradict itself because, oh, all right, for money. I forgot about the money. Oh, well, stay woke, everybody, but do it smarter, not harder. Tap man out. Peace.